This is God's word. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The title of our series uh, that we started last week through this little uh, book of Haggai is this. Now is the time to build. And we got that last week. We saw that. Uh, we saw the problem was that the, the people of, of, of Judah, who are the subjects of this, this book here, this, this Old Testament prophecy, um, they had uh, returned to the promised land after being in exile for 50 years, give or take. They've been living, uh, many of them, in the land of, of Babylon. And uh, the Babylonians sort of lost power and the Persians came in. And as part of the Persian sort of uh, policy, foreign policy, they let all the exiled people go back to their various lands, no matter who they were and where they were from. And so the people of Judah got to go back. And they got to go back and rebuild their temple. But they were back for 20 years, give or take. And they had started on the, the temple, they started on the foundations, uh, but yet they had put the tools down. They had stalled for one reason or another. And we looked at that reason last week. And so the book of Haggai is all about God saying to his people, now is the time for you to come back and work, to, 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 to come back and return to the calling I gave you to rebuild the temple. And so we saw that uh, really playing out last week. But this week, we have a slightly different message from God to the same group of people. God addresses a particular risk, a particular mentality that's going on in the minds of the people uh, that threatens the entire project. And so he addresses it, this sort of spirit within the community, this attitude within the community. Um, they come up against time and time again, kind of, kind of like a defeater. You know, every time they, they bump into it, uh, they're tempted to stop the work again. And so God here in this uh, passage introduces this and, and speaks truth to the people. So first of all, uh, you know, we're going to think of this in three, three ways. We're going to first of all understand the issue uh, that, that's being addressed here is comparison. So we've got number one, comparison that crushes. Okay. Number two, they have a calling that compels. And number three, a climax that comforts. And yes, they all begin with C. Pretty proud of that. Cli uh, comparisons that crush, calling that compels, and a climax that comforts. So first of all, let's look at this issue, this, this spirit that seems to be uh, woven into the mindset of the people. Comparisons. 
Um, as you can see uh, in verse 1 of, of the passage we just read, this is the second word that has come to the people. Uh, when, when you do the sort of mathematics and in terms of the uh, calendars and all that stuff, this word was given to the people through the prophet Haggai on the 17th of October, 520 BC. Exactly. And it was addressed, as you can see, to the leaders of the people. You've got Zerubbabel, who's like the governor, the civic governor. And you've got Joshua, who's the high priest. He's like the religious leader. So God speaks to them. And he speaks also to the remnant. You know, he addresses the people as a whole. And he addresses this deeply held issue. Look down in verse 3. This is God speaking. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory, he asks. How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? It seems to be that even though these people were in exile for 50 years, there were some in that number who remember the old days, before the exile. They remember the temple as it was before it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, before the invasion. No doubt stories were told about how good the old temple was, how beautiful, how wonderful it was. Probably those stories with time, as most stories are, are embellished, you know. But the point is, the people who are working on the foundations, trying to build the current, the new temple, the second temple, are looking at their present efforts. And to be honest, in comparison with the good old days, with what they remember and what they've been told, what they're doing now is rubbish. It's nothing. And to be quite honest with you, they are incredibly disappointed with the start they've made so far. Because compared to the good old days, what we're doing now is never as good. And so we have in verse 3 here, God is not poking fun at his people, but he is pointing to a deeply held conviction that they hold as a community. And we know it's deeply held because in another Bible passage, in the book of Ezra, chapter 3, another sort of uh, teacher of the people of Israel, 20 years earlier, we see the same attitude playing out in the same group of people, in the people of Judah. At that time, they had just literally built the foundations. They've dug them again. They've, they've put the, you know, a couple of layers of bricks. At this time, there's a great celebration. This is 20 years earlier. There's consecration of the work so far. They were shouting and wailing. But it says that the elders remembered the good old days and the noise was so great says Ezra chapter 3. You couldn't distinguish between the shouts of celebration and the wailing and sadness because of the memories of the good old days. And now we see here in Haggai chapter 2 the same spirit that seems to pervade. The same issue is still going on among the community of people, whether it's spoken or whether it's just assumed, we don't know. But whatever it is, we know that God who sees the heart, sees the mind of every person, says it's there. And see, the issue for the people is not so much looking back at the good old days. Because time and time again in the Bible, God's people are told, look back, remember what I've done. Look back with thanks and gladness. That's not the issue. But the issue, the thing that's really defeating the work efforts, is comparison. The old days of the temple, the good times, and they're assessing the current situation in light of what the past tells them, what they think they remember anyway. And it doesn't compare. It doesn't match up. This is nothing compared to the old days. 
And so the effect, you can imagine what the effect of that kind of mentality that's so deeply held in that community, what it will generate. It generates un unrest. It sort of empties the people of motivation. We saw that last week. When they should be working, they're just more tempted to doubt. What's the point? It's never going to be as good as the old days. No doubt there was a lack of joy among the people, probably. Depression, depressed state. No point. Simply put, this is a comparison that crushes. And it is destructive to the work they're trying to do. Many of us here today may struggle with the same kind of spirit, the same attitude. We may find ourselves continually comparing ourselves with other people. Maybe you do this. And it's made particularly easy, isn't it, with, with social media. You only have to glance at Facebook or Instagram and you see the kind of lives that other people are projecting or presenting of themselves. And when we look at them, often uh, they look so good. The, the lives they present are so great compared to our own. When you look at Facebook or Instagram, by and large, you see happy, smiling people, people who look great, who dress well, who are much more cool than I am, people who are out there living the dream. If you're, if you're a bloke particularly, you're more likely to be impressed by other men lifting weights in the gym. Um, there's, there's a guy that I follow for some stupid reason on Instagram who just seems to always set his phone up in the gym. It's not James, by the way. Or anyone, it's, not, it's not anyone in this room. Uh, sets it up, and then he goes over here and does a squat with these massive set of weights, and then that's the end of the video. And he uploads that to Instagram, and I sit there and watch that. And I think, wow, that's pretty cool, actually. You know, what a, what a great body he's got. Men do it. Women do it. We look at one another's families. Other people's kids look so well-balanced. Their, their babies are so well-behaved. Their exam results are so much better. Even as Christians, we know other Christians parading their holiness in Instagram and you know, on the social media. And we think, my goodness, I could never read those books. I could never be as spiritual as that person there. And some of us even are pretty aware uh, that, that what we see on Instagram, Facebook, and other outlets are just airbrushed versions of reality. It's the truth that people want to show you. You know, the right image, the right filters, the right poses, the right angles. But yet we still can't stop ourselves from comparing ourselves with what we see. It all adds up. We look and think, I could never be like that. I could never reach this level of beauty or strength or success or well-being that these other people seem to have. But maybe you're not a user of social media. Um, but that doesn't mean to say you're not likely going to be comparing yourself with other people, either in your workplace or your neighbors and what they're driving and what their houses are like. See, we're always comparing, often subconsciously. But does it ever do us any good? Well, I think this story here, at the very least, shows us that comparison crushes. Churches do it as well. We look at other churches in our area or in our city or elsewhere in other parts of the world and we look at them and they're bigger than us and they're stronger than us and they have more fancy social media than us. There I go again. Than us. Uh, they are more impressive, more trendy, more influential than us. But that is comparison that crushes. It kills the spirit. It robs us of joy. If we compare ourselves too much, it contributes to depression. We'll never achieve what we see 
out there. We'll never acquire what we see in others. And so our lives become a constant frustration, a constant sense of anxiety. We either overwork to try and get that stuff or we underwork because we can never get that stuff. Either way, comparison crushes you, it grinds your spirit, it flattens your soul. Maybe you can relate to some of the things I've been expounding in the last few minutes. Maybe it's time you review your use of social media. Maybe it's time I review my use of social media. Maybe it's time for a fast of social media. Maybe it's time you look at the way you assess your friends and your work colleagues. Comparison that crushes. But God provides an answer to comparisons that crush. And his answer might surprise you. His answer is not stop comparing, but instead he says you're looking in the wrong direction. You're looking at the wrong stuff. Instead, he says, I'm going to give you a calling that compels. The effect, as we've seen, of comparisons that crush is a sense of weakness, that we are alone, that our work is pointless, our existence is pointless. But you can see here a calling that compels. Look down in verse 4. Three times, God, through the prophet, says this one phrase, two words, be strong. O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, uh, the the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Be strong. Now is the time to work, he says. Be strong and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant I made with you when you came out of Egypt. God there, of course, is referring, if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, uh, God is referring back to a time, many, many generations before the days of Haggai, when the people of Israel came out of Egypt, with the the leadership of Moses. Moses met God up Mount uh, Mount Sinai. And God um, cut this covenant with Moses and with the entire people. He said to them, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be with you. I'm never going to leave you. And here is how you live in response. And that's where they got the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law code as well, how they should live in response to what God has done. And so God is saying here in Haggai chapter 2, the same thing occurs. You haven't come out of Egypt. You've come out of exile. But I am the same God. It's the same covenant. My promises hold good. You are my people. And I'm going to dwell with you. But then he takes it and sort of develops it a little further by adding this phrase towards the end of verse 5. My spirit remains in your midst. It's important um, as we go through this to, to note the details of what's being said here. Be strong from God. It is not just a, a moralistic thing to say. You know, like some of these terrible inspirational posters that would have been doing the rounds in the 90s. You know, a picture of a lovely mountain range. And it would say underneath it, reach for the heights, or you can do it. Strive to be the best you can. That's not what God is saying to the people here. He's not just saying, you know what, stir yourselves up. You can do it. Because the problem is, and we saw this last week, 
The problem is that they can't do it on their own. And as we were singing a few moments ago in that last song, I can't do it on my own, and neither can you. We can't just be strong on our own, and that's the point. This is not some inspirational tripe that God is giving them. He is saying, be strong, work strong, turn to the task I'm giving you. Why? He says, because I am with you and my spirit is in your midst. That's why you are to be strong. He gives them a calling that compels. We saw last week how God was so determined to be with his people to live out his covenant promises that I'm going to be your God, I'm going to be with you, you're going to be my people. He did that finally and fully through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, giving him to seal the deal so that his perfect life lived, his death died, his resurrection means that you and I, when we put our faith in him and what he's done and receive the forgiveness of sins through his blood, that we are in the covenant that God is our God. We will be his people. We saw that last week. But there's a second truth, a second part to this awesome promise that God will be with his people that I want to tease out just now. And is it found in that phrase there at the end of, chapter, uh, end of verse 5? My spirit will be in your midst. My spirit will be in your midst. Fast forward to the New Testament. The apostle Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, you can read all about it. And this is the day, by the way, that the Holy Spirit was, was poured out upon the church in unprecedented ways. No more did the Holy Spirit just come upon distinct and specific individuals in history. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out on all people. Everyone, young and old, men and women, received the Holy Spirit and still do. Knowing God personally, intimately, like never before. And so Peter stood up on that day and he preached and he said to the Jews who were gathered before him, this Jesus you killed, God raised him from the dead, he called him Lord, and if you come to faith in him, said Peter, and if you repent, that is you turn from your sins, he will forgive you your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter promised. That's what God gave. What is this gift of the Holy Spirit? You know, you can go to some churches and the Holy Spirit is all you hear about. Holy Spirit. That's great and amazing. But you can go to other churches when you never hear mention of the Holy Spirit. Never explained, never taught about, never experienced. So we want to be by the grace of God, the kind of church that is both, that gives the Holy Spirit his rightful place here at Foundation Church. So what is this gift that the Apostle Peter talks about? What is this promise that God gives in the book of Haggai? This gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, as we read through the rest of the Bible, we see that the gift of the Holy Spirit is God himself given to his people. It is God given to you. The Holy Spirit, in his ministry, takes the work of Christ 
that Jesus did on the cross that time, back in history, he takes that and he applies it to you. You're united to Christ by his Holy Spirit. What happened to Christ happened to you. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is Christ in you. It is the same Holy Spirit who adopts you, who who makes you into a son or a daughter of God. It is the same Spirit that holds you in his hand and never lets you go. It is the same Spirit that transforms you to be more like Jesus Christ day by day. It is the same Holy Spirit who empowers you to serve. It is not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. And it is given to every believer. I say it, he is given to every believer. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, the same power that raised Jesus from the grave lives in me. This is the gift of the Spirit. Power, strength. Now we can start to see when we see the the wider Bible's teaching on the Holy Spirit, we can start to understand why be strong is not just a stupid inspirational catchphrase. If you are in Christ by faith, then it is really and actually true of you. And so this compelling call to be strong is simply a way of saying, be who you are. You are strong because the Holy Spirit is in you. Be strong. You have the power to overcome sin in your life. Because of the Holy Spirit, you have the power to resist temptation. Because of the Holy Spirit, you have the power to live a life that is pleasing to God. Because of the Holy Spirit, you have power to serve and to build up others. You have power to transform your comparison that crushes into a calling that compels. Instead of anxiety, you may have freedom. Instead of depression, you may have joy. Instead of overworking or underworking, you will have the power and the ability to work for God to his glory. This is the calling that compels. We've got the comparison that crushes. We've got the calling that compels. And thirdly and finally, we have the climax, the comforts. Climax, the comforts. We could just stop here and just think more about the the gift of the Holy Spirit and how important and how amazing that is. But the scripture carries on. There is more. There is more to come. The climax, the comforts. The present reality is that God is really and truly with his people by the Spirit, but he gives them yet more. He gives them a further picture, a glorious future. You're powerful because I'm with you, he says, but in a little while, in verse 6, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. He envisages this time of great plenty to come in their future, a great strength restoration as a people of God like it used to be except even better we see this great climactic day as God says doesn't just come by ordinary means not by economic growth or or political strength but by divine origin I will shake the heavens and the earth the sea and the dry land 
All of the created order will be shaken up by God. Everything movable will be shaken. You may have had, when you were younger, a, a piggy bank or something similar where you would put money in, your pocket money, maybe a pound every week or something like that, and you could hear it, uh, at the more money you put in, you could hear it building up. But the only way, one of the only ways, a true piggy bank made out of you know, clay or ceramic or something, the only way to get it out is to pick it up and give it a shake. And you could sometimes stick in a, um, a dinner knife or something like that just to try and get the last 50p out or something like that. But we get that kind of idea here. God, the divine creator, taking the heavens and the earth and shaking it so that the silver and gold and the tribute of the nations, the treasures, will flow out into Jerusalem, into the temple. Verse 9, God says, The latter glory of this house... What is coming up, he says, shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace. How different, how ironic it is compared to verse 3. Remember that spirit of comparison where they were looking back on the old temple? God says, you will look back on your old temple and you will realize that was nothing compared to what I have in store for you. Wait and see what's going to happen. In effect, God says to his people, you've been getting demotivated and depressed because of your comparisons. You've sensed your failure. You think you'll never return to the glory days. You have restricted resources and you feel insignificant and weak. I know that stuff, says God. Your comparisons are crushing you. But he says here, the silver and gold are mine. Have you, have you forgotten do you not know who I am? I hold the nations in my hand. Do you not think that I can achieve my purposes, says God? Do you not think I can do it in my way, in my time? Do you not think I can bring a glory that is greater and a peace that is purer? This is God's promise to his people in Haggai chapter 2. So we have to ask ourselves, stood here today, a lot of years after, two and a half thousand years later, how does this promise work for us? How does this glorious future that God has been portraying for his people, how does that work for us? And when it comes to reading the Old Testament, the bit before Jesus in the Bible, which is about two-thirds of it, we can't put ourselves directly into the shoes of the people of Judah. We're not there. We're not those people. Jesus Christ has come and gone since then. Things have changed now. Jesus is the true temple. He's the true sacrifice. He's the great high priest. He took the law and fulfilled it. So therefore, we relate to the Old Testament differently. So how do we respond then to this great and amazing climax that comforts? Let me just say a couple of the ways that we can't relate to it, first of all. And then We'll finish off with one way that this makes a big difference for us. Number one, we can't take this directly as a local church. As Foundation Church, we can't come to this text and apply it to ourselves and say, well, you know, it says here in God's Word, uh, God is going to build us up as a church. He's going to make us glorious and successful. He's going to bless our building projects. He's going to make us a church of influence. That's not what we can take from this. Maybe we will be successful, and that's what we're hoping and praying for and asking from God. But we can't take this promise directly. 
can't take it as a local church. Secondly, we can't take it as individuals. I can't stand here before you today and say, God is going to bless you with money. He's going to make blessings pour down from heaven like rain. He's going to make you happy, healthy, and wealthy. I can't say that to you. He might do, but that's not what this verse is teaching. So we can't take it directly as a local church. We can't take it directly as individuals. But don't be disappointed, everybody. Because we, like the people of Judah, have a climax that comforts. It remains so for us. We have the fulfillment of a greater and wider scale than that imagined by Haggai. Better than any single local church. Better than any individual can receive in themselves. Because these verses that we've just read at the end of this little passage foreshadow a greater city of peace that will one day come down from heaven, the new Jerusalem. Let me read to you a passage from the end of the Bible, just very briefly, from Revelation 21, because this is where we get the climax, the comforts. This is John speaking. Then I saw the new heavens and the new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice saying from the throne, listen, behold, the dwelling place of God is with his people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. And then he goes on to say, by the light in this city, the nations will walk. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. We're reading here about the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the place of glory and honor of the nations coming in. This is our great and glorious future. This is the climax of the covenant. This is the place that is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit, given to people who trust in the work of Christ. This is the reality that lies ahead. C.S. Lewis, in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, refers to his experience at his vile boarding school. And he said as a small, smaller child, the thought of the holidays at the end of the term just sounded like it was so far away. The numbers of weeks between the beginning of term and the end of term were so astronomically high that they just faded from the mind. But he said, as time went on, as the term continued, suddenly those astronomical numbers became practical. Suddenly it wasn't many, many weeks to go. It was six weeks from now. Summer shall be here. And then eventually one week from now, summer will be here. And then eventually, he says, like a transcendent experience, that last day when tomorrow summer will be here and he said that very thought would send a shiver down the spine would almost stop you from breathing 
because tomorrow, summer, will be here. In the same way, because of Jesus, we have this climactic future that comforts. God is with us now. His Spirit is with us. But in some way, that is just a down payment of what lies ahead, what this climax that comforts looks like. And we as people in Christ get to be a part of that future. And when we get that, it destroys the need for comparison. It underscores our calling to work. Now is the time to build. Let's pray.